Hey everybody, I'm Jace, and this is the Millennial Mariner Podcast. I'll be reading a short story from both major publications and more obscure magazines and journals, and analyze and discuss the writing techniques and moves that the authors use to make each story tick. Join me as I read these stories and take them apart to better understand what goes into writing and even telling an effective and compelling story. Hey everybody, I'm going to read another story. It's been a long time since I've read a story and I want to keep doing this because I've found several stories that I want to share and I just haven't given the time to do this. So the story I want to read today is called Freyer by Tommy Orange. And it's one that I read a few days ago that I think is really cool, but also very weird. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to share a little bit about Tommy Orange read, and I'll read from the Wikipedia page. I will then read the story and the story was published in the literary magazine Zoetrope All Story. And it was in this, this literary magazine is a big one in the United States and it's one that um, was founded by the director Francis Ford Coppola. And he's, if you, if you know who he is, he's the one who directed the Godfather series among many, many other films. So yeah, so I'm gonna read about Tommy Orange and then we'll jump into the story. So I'll share my screen so you can see who Tommy Orange is and then we will figure out where to go from there. So here is Tommy Orange. So Tommy Orange here on the right-hand side, he was born January 19th, 1982. He is an American novelist and writer from Oakland, California. His first book, There, There, was one of the finalists for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and received the 2019 American Book Award. Orange is a citizen of the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations of Oklahoma. He attended Institute of American Indian Arts and earned the MFA. He was born and raised in the Diamond District, Oakland, California and resides in Angels Camp, California, with his wife, Kateri, and his son, Felix. So I'm going to read a little bit about his writing career here, and a little bit about uh, awards and nominations that he has received as a writer. So it says here, growing up, Orange mentions that he did not do well in school and was not necessarily encouraged to read. After graduating from college, he got a job at a bookstore where he developed a passion for reading. Along with the national bestseller, um, which is his um, the, the book that he wrote there, there, Orange has written for Esquire magazine on the profile of an average Native American teen. This article is about 17-year-old Jeffrey Martinez and what his life is like as a Native American in today's world. He has also published short stories in literary magazines, including McSweeney's, Zoe Tripp All Story, and ZYZZYVA. Some awards and nominations that Tommy Orange has received are the following. So he has received the John Leonard Prize in 2018, awarded for an author's first book in any genre. In 2019, Orange received the Penn Hemingway Award, which is dedicated to the first-time authors of full-length fiction books and the American Book Award, denoting outstanding literary achievement. 
There There, his novel also received nominations for various other recognitions, including the Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Audi Award for a multi-voiced performance, and two from Goodreads Choice Awards, Best Fiction and Best Debut Goodreads Author. So those, that's a little bit about Tommy Orange here. And again, that's him on the right. And I will pull up the story so that you so we can start reading it. But that's yeah, that's a little bit to, a little bit for you to know about Tommy Orange and who he is and and what to expect from this story. So this story is weird, very weird, but I I like it. I I I really I was impressed with I, I was really impressed with this story when I read it. And just so that just so y'all know, this uh, issue that the story Freyer came in was, uh, the, I guess the, the the editor, the design editor for this issue was David Lynch. And if you've watched anything that David Lynch has directed, you're gonna understand why this story is so strange. Because uh, David Lynch is the one who directed um, and created Twin Peaks. He also um, directed the movie, he's directed the movie, I think it was Mulholland Drive, and uh, Eraserhead and a lot of the movies that he, movies and TV shows that he has been involved in have been very surreal and very strange. And this story, even though it wasn't written by David Lynch, it's uh, a story that has been, was selected for this issue that David Lynch uh, edited. So uh, just up front here with this story, what we will be encountering, just so it's it's brought up in the very first part of the story, but there's a dude who has a hand or arm that has grown out of his chest. And that is the weird part of the story. So, yeah. So it, it comes up really early on. This guy has a, an arm that grows out, uh, an arm that grows out of his chest. And so I'm excited to read the story. It's a, it's a relatively short story. Um, I don't think it will take us very long to get through. So without further ado, I will share my screen and we'll read Freyer by Tommy Orange. So here it is, Freyer. They referred to Frank as the guy with the hand that came out of his chest. It doesn't even make sense, hand that came out of chest. It didn't come out, it was just there. The problem is with language, what it reveals about our biological biases our clumsiness regarding all things abnormal. Normal is vanilla, nonspecific, flavorless, colorless, your basic blah, nothing, default white, gray, for example. The stick they have everyone measure himself by. His hand no more came out of his chest than our hands come out of our wrists and our heads out of our necks. The hand was there like his other two hands were there, only in a different place. He had an extra hand if extra can or should be used here. I'm not sure. Maybe it's better just to say Frank had a third hand and it was on his chest. Frank, if you didn't know about the hand, wasn't all that weird except that maybe the hand made him weird in ways I couldn't tell. The difference between what he was and what he would have been like had he not had the third hand, for example, but since I knew about the hand from early on, I knew why the look on his face was an ever wincing mess of discomfort. Me, on the other hand, I wasn't well liked or even paid attention to on account of what you might call my exceptional ugliness. 
I'm quite possibly even clinically ugly. That's not self-deprecating. My kind of ugly, it's the sort people think it's rude to look at, but they can't look away either. Women especially, but for different reasons than because of rudeness. Women think ugly guys are automatically creepy because there's no way they're not desperate due to their ugliness and its resultant inevitable isolation and loneliness making. Ugliness came out of my face, protruded. Think of a Native American Bill Murray with Steve Buscemi eyes. My dad's where the native comes from, but he didn't talk much growing up and now he's dead, which is another kind of ugly we hate to talk about, but can't look away from. Frank is company lore now. No one ever took his desk on account of what can only be assumed was an absurd fear of somehow catching what he had. No one ever should have even seen the hand. Frank was an overly cautious person. The whole thing was an accident. Here's how it happened. Me and Frank were leaned up against the base of a tree at the company picnic, precariously eating while balancing our paper plates, weighed too heavily on one side by potato salad. As our coworkers, in a sloppy match of drunken volleyball, laughed at themselves, failing to successfully volley the ball. It was hot that day. Frank went to take off one of his many layers. He layered to hide the hand. A practice that, even when it wasn't hot out, generally made him sweaty, but so there we were, me and Frank under the tree, and it was stupid hot. And when Frank went to take off his sweater, he unintentionally pulled all of his layers up. At that moment, all his layers were up. The volleyball came rolling toward us and everyone looked over. The hand was limp and smaller than his other hands, not like a baby's hand, just smaller than his others. While he struggled with the sweater, his hand was completely covered. So for that awful moment, he had no idea what was happening. Everyone saw the hand, their mouths hung. I wanted to step between the hand and them, but I couldn't move and my mouth was open too. When Frank eventually got the sweater off, he saw everyone seeing him. He saw that they'd seen. He looked over at me like I had something to do with it, like I'd somehow betrayed him. His face asked, what have you done? My face, frowning, answered, I'm so sorry we're alive. At that point, Frank took off. He ran toward the reservoir, which shone in the hot afternoon sun like gold. I was afraid he might jump in drown himself in the water like Kafka's Georg in the judgment, but he just ran around the thing toward the parking lot and drove away. We'd come together and I sadly realized that I'd have to ask one of our coworkers for a ride. One evening, about a week after the picnic, when I'd been staring at my computer so long I'd started to involuntarily cry, I looked up rubbed my eyes and saw that half the lights in the office were off. Before I left, I went to see if Frank was still there too, and, and he was, on the floor, lying face down, almost under his desk, like he'd tried to crawl under there to die. No one had noticed him. After Frank died, after his heart attacked, then stopped forever, I thought it must have been due to what happened, to everyone finding out. Though he'd kept it hidden for so many years, when the thing emerged, it was the end of a deep game Frank had been playing. It had been the same with my dad when my mom found out about his drinking. 
the same sequence, the emergence of a secret, then a heart attack. My dad had confessed to my mom one miserable night in the kitchen while I listened in through the vent from my room above that he'd been covertly drinking at least four times the amount she'd seen him drink. He visibly drank plenty. He told her he kept his bottles in the laundry room behind the mostly empty cleaning supplies she refused to get rid of. A week later during my high school graduation, my dad had grabbed at his chest, at his heart, when the hats went up. He hadn't graduated high school or even been to a graduation. He hadn't expected the hats to go up. All of those hats, they went up like bombs and by the time they landed, he was dead. A few days after the company picnic, Frank called and asked if I wanted to go to a movie. We met at the theater and he smiled a smile at me. I knew meant that we were okay that he knew I hadn't been part of what happened. Before we went in, we smoked and walked the circumference of the Grand Lake Theater, talked about the kind of things it never occurs to me to remember. I got us a big popcorn to share, and sitting there in the dark, I thought about how Frank's hand would have been perfect for grabbing a fistful, and what a shame it was that it was too strange a thing to make public. After the movie, and after we'd walked a mile or so debriefing, we got to his place and he asked if I wanted to come up for coffee before I got back to walking. We were uptown and I lived in a loft near Jack London Square. I agreed that it would be good to take a break and that coffee would be nice considering I had some work to do when I got home. As it turned out, he had an espresso machine and we each drank a shot with a tiny bit of sugar in silence. He offered me a pack of those little hexagonal crackers that sometimes come with soup. I slipped the pack into my pocket. You wanna see it, he said. For a moment, I didn't know what he meant, but so loaded was the question that the moment didn't last long. And in fact, turned seamlessly into a different kind of silence, a silence that indicated I knew exactly what he meant and that I needed to fill as soon as possible. Yeah, I mean, if you're comfortable bringing it out. Bringing it out? Frank asked. Don't take it the wrong way. I just mean, I'm messing with you. I didn't respond, but by laughing a little, then pulling the crackers from my pocket, then opening them. He took off all his layers beneath everything he had on a tight black t-shirt with a hole cut out in the middle where the hand was. The hand wore a black cotton glove. It hadn't worn anything at the picnic. And I wondered if it had just started doing that because of what happened. When he peeled off the glove, I thought of blinking eyes after a blindfold's been removed. The hand didn't move. I didn't think, but I thought of blinking eyes anyway. It's hard, you know, he said. I can't imagine what it must be like. You might though, you might know what it's like. Right, I said, regarding my face. He'd first told me about the hand at one of our initial dinners together when our co-workers indiscreetly went out for drinks and didn't invite us. We had burritos in downtown Oakland, then went to a dive bar that let you smoke in the back behind plexiglass. We each got a shot and beer after a shot and a beer before our burritos at a different bar. We got close that night, like you can get close only when you drink a little too much and maybe say a little too much. At times, I noticed a bulge. Can I ask you a favor, Frank said, after an uncomfortable amount of time? Would you mind shaking it? No one's ever shaken it before. No one's ever held it. Yes, I mean, of course. It was much paler than the other two. 
It looked untouched. It had character, though. It seemed somehow more than a hand. I didn't know if he wanted me to hold it or shake it. I reached toward it with my left hand, since it was left-handed, too, and just let it happen. We shook and then held the shake there for a moment, looking into each other's eyes and then down at our hands. Real, natural feeling. Not too long, but long enough that something went between us. Some secret transmission from wherever all that is abnormal strays from the warmth of its fitted pocket in the great and general uniform chain of being. At the reception after his funeral, over triangles of club sandwiches and punch, I met Frank's sister. She was big featured, tall and blonde. And with big hands, I couldn't help but stare at, which I noticed, she noticed, me noticing them. She towered over me there at the buffet. Her voice was low, sonorous, beautiful. Halbjörg, she said, with an accent I couldn't place. She gave me her hand to shake. Halbjörg, I said. Her hand enveloped mine. It was warm and clammy. It's Icelandic, she said, with a small smile and some distance from her eyes between where I was and where she must have been, having just lost her brother. How did you know Freyr? Who? My brother, how did you know him? Frank? I promise you his name was not Frank, she said and laughed a little. I rocked on my heels and nodded my head like I was mulling it over. She looked at me askance while eating the corner of a sandwich triangle, then washed it down with punch from a tiny plastic cup. He was never supposed to live beyond the age of one, she said. He should have died when he was a baby. He was born with no thumbs on his hands. Thumbs are related to heart health. They used parts of his, the other hand. She watched me as if to see if I understood. I nodded in a knowing way. They used parts of that hand to build two working thumbs. We were friends through work, I said. Halbjörg produced a flask. Brennevin, she asked, and raised her eyebrows, then took a pull and tilted the flask toward me. It's Icelandic vodka. They call it Black Death. I nodded again and took a healthy pull. Our mom used to tell him, she said, used to tell us that he would have been considered a shaman the way things used to be. Used to be. For our people from the Arctic Circle, she said, we're like white-skinned Native Americans. You could say we're like Inuits. I call us white-skindians. I was going to tell her about my dad, but she went on. We had a song for everything. We made a song for everything we could think of when Freyr and I were young enough to believe in everything. We used to think that if we practiced our songs enough, if we got good enough at them, put enough into them, we could really make things happen. When our parents died some years ago, Freya wrote a song he meant for me to sing to them in private over their graves. He knew I had the voice for the song he wrote. I couldn't do it. I wanted to, more for him than for them, but I just couldn't. I was a mess over them dying. It was sudden, you know. What happened, I said. Car crash. After I didn't sing the song, that's when he started isolating himself from me. But then, I'm sorry to go on for so long, but then at the end, he sent me the song in an email. He'd made a recording of himself singing it. There were small claps in the song, little claps. There'd never been claps before in any of the songs we'd made. I wondered what was making the claps, but I think I know. I felt like I needed to sit down, but I didn't want her to know I needed to sit down. So I pretended I needed to cough and then turned away and fake coughed. I looked around the room and noticed the crowd 
had thinned out. Halbjorg noticed me, looking around and looked around herself. These are all our parents' friends from Utah. There's a big Icelandic community there in Spanish Fork. It goes back to the 1800s. I don't know most of them. They show up at weddings and funerals, sometimes randomly for birthdays, or one time we all got together in San Francisco to celebrate Seaman's Day on Pier 39. I nodded in acknowledgement of this fact. I'm glad he found a friend, she said. One time he told me, most of all, he just wanted to be normal, I said. Yes, well, normal. He was not that, but I know he was trying to be that. And maybe dying a normal death like he did, maybe he liked that. I think the way he tried to be normal had a normality to it that wasn't normal. I'm going to sing a song now, she said. She smiled something awful and walked out into the middle of the room, where she announced that she was going to sing a song in memory of her brother, Freyer. Someone handed her a microphone, as if this had been expected, and she proceeded to sing with her rich, low tone, something I barely experienced as a song. It was more like an elongated sound that you followed with your ears, stomach, and heart that you felt sorrow about, but also relief. You went up and down on that sound, oscillating between dread and hope, grief and joy, ever moving beyond a field through a forest and then out into the sea. So there you have it. Freyr by Tommy Orange. And if you like that story, I can, I'll, I'll provide the link. Um, I, I, I like it. I really like weird things. And I like weird stories. And this is one that I thought was very interesting and very fascinating, especially regarding the, um, the feeling of the narrator as a Native American man, and also the feeling that Frank slash Freyer had as a, as a man with a, an, a hand coming out of his chest. And I think that Tommy Orange does a really excellent job of teasing out the the feeling of, of otherness that Native American people feel with also the, the feeling that uh, Frank had with, with being just, just barely not normal. And that's similar to, to what a lot of Native Americans feel in America today, even though they are American, a lot of times they're not treated as such, they're treated as foreign. And so even with Frey, even with Frank being in the office and having worked at the office for so long, he is only regarded as uh, an outsider and a, and, a, and a weird person. And what I think is even more interesting is the same the same way that a lot of people see Native American culture now, and see Native. There are a lot of people that aren't acquainted with with uh, with modern Native American lives and everything that see Native Americans as a dying group or see them as, or I guess, uh, mythologize uh, Native American culture as, as, as something of the past. And similar to even Frank, as Frank dies, the narrator says that people in the office turned him into a myth or turned him into like folklore, or turned him into some like something larger than life. And I think that Tommy Orange is doing that in a way to kind of push back against uh, what is being, what is done to, what has been done for so long toward Native Americans and toward uh, not not just Native Americans in the United States, but also Native Americans in, or in na Native peoples and Indigenous peoples of, of North and South America, but, and, and throughout the world. But yeah, I hope you like that story. It is a weird one, but I, I thought it was a, a really entertaining, 
but also very thought-provoking story. So thank you for hanging out with me for these uh, 20 or so minutes. And you know, I hope you have a good rest of your day and I'll be back, uh, be back soon with another story.